0: It's it's what? It's my profile picture on Facebook. Oh, cool. Okay. Yeah, it's real cute. Yay.
1: (laughs) I'm really excited about it. I feel so collegiate. (laughs) What (laughs) year are you? The first year. Oh, okay. Good. So finally. So finally, I can read Keats on the Great Lawn. Yeah. you are allowed to be excited about that. I'm so excited. (laughs)
0: All right. Well, we'll talk to Brandeis PR and see if they can put it on their webpage. Okay.
1: I'll,
0: I'll mention it. I'll pull whatever strings I find. (laughs) Thank you. All right, so what are we thinking about? God, it's actually really human in here. What are we thinking about Keats? Darling. What? He's just darling. He's darling. He's darling. Um, Were you thinking Kublai Khan as you read La Belle d'Anne Samarie? Because you should have been.
1: Yeah.
0: I mean, you think about Kublai Khan all the time, right?
1: I do. (laughs) Well,
0: you should definitely have been thinking of it um, then. Easy, comparatively speaking, after Shelley and well, after Shelley, <laughs> <laughs> after Shelley, easy, good. We'll go back to Shelley. You don't have to worry that it's going to be easy for too long. It's a little like the marathon. We're going to get the get to the heartbreak hill of Shelley again soon, but it's a nice little break. Yeah, tell me. Uh My favorite my kids was always when my I had Beyoncé's because it always reminded me of like every great rock and roller who died young. Uh huh yeah um, as did Keats so Keats is the one who died youngest of all the poets that we're reading um, and basically he stopped writing poetry um, a couple of years before he died and um, w- maybe with some, with some um, few fragments and um, uh, he died in um, well despair um be cut partly because he was dying so young. He had medical training um, and he came from a, from a working class background, he had medical training, um, was going to be a surgeon and understood what was happening to him um, and nursed his brother who died of TB, um, nursed his brother um, through his TB till he died and then Keats himself coughed up blood one day and he could see that it was arterial blood which is a symptom of TB. And that's what eventually killed him. Um, Shelley, who didn't know him well, they didn't know each other very well. And um, Keats didn't particularly like Shelley. But Shelley arranged um, to have Keats come to Italy, um, where the weather would be better for someone than, than England, where the weather's terrible if you have TB. Well, the, the weather's terrible if you're in simple. Um, And arranged for him to come <coughs> to Italy. And Keats died in Rome was buried in the Protestant cemetery. As you'll see, uh, when we look at Shelley's elegy on Keats, Adonais, which is written in, do you know what what it's written in? Uh, Spenserian Spenserian stanzas. Um, Appropriately enough, because Keats also wrote in Spenserian stanzas, um, Shelley had done that before. This wasn't Shelley's first um, (coughs) great poem in Spenserian stanzas. Um, but the Eve of Saint Agnes is in Spenserian stanzas. So, does anyone besides um, Tony know what a Spenserian stanza is? It's what Child Harold is written in as well. Um, so you may remember we talked about them. Um, sort of. I don't
1: remember the exact details of what they.
0: Okay, so they instead of instead of ottava rima, which you guys should like be dreaming in or should have been dreaming in for a little while, um, ottava rima is what's written in ottava rima that we read. Don Juan and what else? Um, yeah. China, no, no Julian Melville's in couplets. I rode one evening with Count Mandello upon the bank of land that breaks the flow of Adria towards Venice. Um, no. Totally different kind of a Taverina. From Byron's, there's really only one person left. Shelley, good. Shelley, yeah. <laughs> and the poem was <laughs> the one that we transitioned into Shelley with because it was an Antavarima. rima. Alastair? Alastair, no, Alastair's in blank verse. So the Witch of Atlas, you go. <laughs> yes, good. but I knew you were going to get it eventually. The Witch of Atlas. So long ago, it's so vivid. Um, you even wrote on it a little bit, but you at the Otavarima part. Oh, well. Um, so Spenserian stanzas, Otavarima is a kind of tightening and um, um, hastening of Spenserian stanzas. Spenserian stanzas are more stately, but Keats writes a really gorgeous Spenserian stanza on the evening of St. Agnes. Um... And maybe we should we should start with that. We'll definitely get no matter what we'll get to when I have fears that I may cease to be today, um, which is in what form? Sonnet. A sonnet. Ever know what a sonnet is? What? What is it?
1: Do you want me to give you the line structure? Okay. Whatever. Just. It's a 14 line poem. Okay, with good. Ten syllables in each line, stressed unstressed. A B A B
0: C. C Not necessarily. What okay, you need is the 14 line. Okay poem, rhymed poem. 14-line rhymed poem is probably enough because there are sonnets written in in couplets. Um, A guy named Merrill Moore writes sonnets in couplets, so there's seven couplets. Shakespearean sonnets are three quatrains and a couplet at the end. Often rhymed A, B, A, B, C, D, C, D, E, F, E, F, G, G, but sometimes not. Um, Petrarchan sonnets break into eight and six. That is, there's a first part that's eight lines long and a second part that's six lines long. And the eight line, um, have you read any Petra? Yeah, but... Do you, you don't remember the form? So ago, yeah. it's, it tends to be A, B, B, A, A, B, B, A. So it's, it starts looking a little bit like a Spenserian stanza, which is rhymed A, B, A, B, B, C, B, C, C. So there's an interleaving of rhymes, um, especially in, the, it, in Italian forms in, genera- in general. Um, there's an interleaving of rhymed lines. It's because it's easier to rhyme in Italian than it is in English. And so you tend to get um, lines that will triple and quadruple rhyme in Italian much more than you will in English. It's harder to write um, Petrarchan sonnets in English than it is in Italian. Um, so. Um, The form is stuff to pay attention to. Uh, The sonnet fell out of favor, just so you know. The sonnet fell out of favor. You know that Shakespeare wrote sonnets. um, Sidney wrote sonnets. Spencer wrote sonnets. um, Milton wrote sonnets. There there were other sonnets who were writing sonnet sequences. Samuel Daniel, Michael Drayton, uh, John Donne. Various people wrote sonnets in the 16th and 17th centuries. Um, But after Milton, pretty much no one wrote sonnets for the next 140 years and um, it was the romantics who revived them um, Wordsworth wrote a sonnet about sonnets, Keats wrote a sonnet about sonnets but um, it's a revived form so it's, it's worth noting that worth noticing it, that sonnets are coming back um, it's one of the things the romantics did, which is to say talking about form in romantic poetry is actually important, um, they thought a lot about form They were were very much against 18th century types of poetry. 18th century poetry tends to be written in what's called the heroic couplet. The heroic couplet is something that, um, if you've read Pope or Dryden, um, you will know very well (laughs) what the heroic couplet is like. Um, Wordsworth despised the heroic couplet. um, And despised is too weak a word. He thought it was despicable. Um, he thought that what the heroic couplet did was to divide the world in half over and over and over again, that the world, which is incredibly subtle and characterized by infinite gradation between and among things, a heroic couplet would say, on the one hand, and yet funnily enough, the opposite, Um, and it would do this over and over and over again. Um, So the Romantic poets, um, led by Wordsworth, Um, revived and invented and reinvented a lot of older forms that had fallen completely out of favor in the 18th century. And um, the sonnet is one of them. Okay, so the Eve of St. Agnes is written in Spencerian stanzas. Can y'all plot summarize it? Yeah? Well, there's this girl and she... Named... No, no, no. Sorry, no, no. No, not not oh shit. No. I said shoot. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Not shoot either.
1: Oh, uh, her name's not shoot. No. This was good, good guess. Name all the time. Oh well.
0: <laughs>
1: um, I know her lover's name is Porfirio.
0: Mm-hmm. Porphyria. Yeah. yeah. But you don't, don't remember know her name. name. Anyone see? Do you know? Madeline. Madeline. Yes. Uh You have to do it. You have to say Madeline because it's that's the meter. Okay. Um, Madeline as in Alfred Hitchcock's vertigo. Okay. Just trying to make connections here. All right. Um who's also a dream figure. Um much like this Madeline. Okay, so go on. There's this Okay,
1: and she likes corporate. Mm-hmm. and it's celebration, Eva St. Agnes, and if you go to sleep and, like, do the right thing, dream of your love, he'll appear and you'll love them, the end, and he sneaks into her room, and so then they, like, get together, but then she's like, oh my gosh, you're real and not a vision, and everything gets, like, messed up, and then they run away, or they die.
0: They die? He He dies?
1: Doesn't he die?
0: No. Not at all. They run away. They <laughs> run away. It's the it's the who dies. It, the poem it, it's 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 really beautifully done, um, and and worth um, just seeing how beautifully done it is. Um, Saint Agnes Eve is January twenty first, um, so it's it's um, very very cold, um, and that's part of the pleasure of the poem, is that. Um, you get a sense of how cold it is outside, um, and yet how beautifully things get amassed inside. So it's um, St. Agnes Eve. Ah, bitter chill it was. The owl, for all his feathers, was a cold. The hair limped trembling through the frozen grass, and silent was the flock in woolly fold. Numb were the beadsman's fingers while he told his rosary, and while his frosted breath, like pious incense from a censer old, seemed taking flight for heaven without a death, past the sweet virgin's picture, while his prayer he saith. Um... So the beadsman is essentially someone who is um, half-hermit, you could say. Someone who is there old, praying, um, counting the rosary, counting his rosary. There's a picture of the Virgin Mary. He's saying his prayers. It's really, really cold. His fingers are numb. Um, the hair is limping. Why is the owl, called, the owl for all his feathers? Why all his feathers? Yeah, because feathers are supposed to keep you warm. Um, you probably know that's the evolution of feathers, right? That um, the reason birds can fly is they evolved feathers, but the reason they evolved feathers was to keep warm, not to fly. Um, so um, using them to fly was was what evolution always does, making use of a previous adaptation. Um, so don't say you learned nothing in this class. Um, they develop from scales. Um, so um it 's really, really cold, and here 's this old man, and so he 's the frame of the poem. You can, <coughs> Keats, in a lot of ways, is um, intensely cinematic. You could imagine a Tim Burton movie starting like this, right um, it 's really, really cold here's this old there 's this owl there 's this hare limping through the grass, and the camera is is, is zooming into this castle, and there 's this hermit like hermit like who is Shivering, and his fingers are numb, and his prayers are going up um, in, in in vapor. His breath is frosted, um, and um, it's all really an incredibly cold night. But then you go into the castle, and um, well, first you see all all these sculptured um, dead on each side where he's praying in the in the chapel. Um, but then you go into the castle, and um, you hear music. So from far away, there's the sound of music, um, and you slowly become aware that there's a party going on in this castle, and we've, gone, we've left the intense cult for the warmth. So that's very, very Keatsian. Um, just this sense, this amazing evocation of sensory experience, Um, this amazing evocation where you can almost feel um, what it is that he's describing Um, incredibly cold night but then you go into this castle it's brightly lit, it's warm there's music that you can hear far away um, down (coughs) the rooms and then when you get to um, let's say stanza um, five um, let's start at stanza four Uh, line 28, that ancient beadsman heard the prelude soft and so it chanced, for many a door was wide from hurry to and fro, so there are a lot of wide open doors people hurrying to and fro, soon up aloft the silver snarling trumpets began to chide the level chambers ready with their pride were glowing to receive a thousand guests, the carved angels ever eager-eyed stared where upon their heads the cornice rests With hair blown black And back and wings put crosswise On their breasts So there's music, their doors opening thousand of pe- A thousand people coming People hurrying to and fro um, The guests come at length Burst in the argent revelry With plume, tiara, and all rich array Numerous as shadows Haunting fairly The brain New stuffed in youth With triumphs gay of old Rome Someone unpack that simile? Numerous as shadows. So that tells you it's a simile. What's a simile? Yeah. You want to say, say. Um, just that yeah.
1: as many as there are
0: shadows, so that's. that's oh. as, as shadows of what, though? So, all these people burst in, and they're as numerous as shadows. What shadows? Ghosts? Sorry?
1: Ghosts?
0: Well, not so much ghosts, but. Um, Memories? Sorry? Memories? Memories? Um, yeah? They have to do more literally, like their own shadows. Yeah, their own shadows, but look what the shadows are doing. What are the shadows doing? What are the rabbits doing? What are the shadow? The rabbits are limping. Um, <laughs> what are the shadows doing? They're haunting?
1: imagination?
0: Yeah, they're haunting the imagination. So all the guests in this castle are as numerous as shadows that haunt the imagination. Um, do you think ferally would count as a Scrabble word? I don't think so. I should try it sometime if I get the right letters. Um, so what does that adverb mean? <coughs> if it's not like a real a, word, which like it probably is. not like fairy? Yeah. yeah, haunting in fa- fairy-like style, the way fairies might haunt. So that's not quite the same thing as ghosts. Um, haunting gives you a little bit of a sense of ghosts, but then fairily, um, like fairies flitting to and fro, Um, Maybe like a Midsummer Night's Dream. What does Puck say at the end? If we shadows shadows have offended, think but this, and all is mended. Um, So um, it's like like we're in a Shakespeare play. That's what he's doing. If we're in a Shakespeare play, what play is it, by the way? It's not a Midsummer Night's Dream, even though there's um, a Midsummer Night's Dream feeling here, but there's a play that it's much more obviously...
1: Romeo and Juliet. Why? Because it this starts off with a party, and they're two lovers, and they end up running away at the end.
0: Mm-hmm. And what's the... Uh, why do they have to run away? Why don't they just say, Mom, Dad, look, here's Romeo, we're going to get married.
1: <laughs> because the Madeline's family does not like him. Does not like... Um, Porphyry. Porphyry.
0: Yeah. Um. Okay. So it is very Romeo and Juliet like. There's a party, there's a feast. Porphyro is in love with Madeline, but if he were caught there, he would be killed. Um, And he has one friend. Who's his friend? (coughs) The nurse. Yes, she's not the nurse,
1: but she is the
0: nurse in Romeo and Juliet. Um, A Order bump up on your final grade if you tell me the name of the nurse in three seconds. Two, one, zero. <laughs> All right, you win. Angela, is the name of the nurse. Good. Um, so, not um, supposed to do that? <laughs> Nicely done. Um, An A plus in the class if you tell me the middle word of the poem. Three, two, one, zero. Oh well, you should have guessed. I would have said Andrew, the um, best guest. Andrew, the oh well, um, yeah. A question: um, Is a beadsman something that keeps made up, or is that like a figure? It's a figure. Okay. Um, you should it, but it's. Are there real beatsmen in the world? I don't think so. Okay. I mean, I think it's a kind of um, figure from romance. It's someone you would expect to see in Spencer um, okay. or. Um, Christabel. Do you know Christabel? The Coleridge poem Christabel. No. Um, Does anyone? No, I think of you as my Coleridge (laughs) person. Um, What happens in Christabel? I feel
1: like it's a very similar premise.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, Kind of the opposite, but yes. So in Christabel, which I think Keats is thinking of, Keats thinks a lot about Coleridge. Um, and, um, you know, something like La Belle Dome Merci, as I said, is a whole lot like, um, Kublai Khan. Christabel is a poem in which the, um, <coughs> title character named Christabel, um, has, um, an idea that she could dream of her love that's far away if she goes outside and does a certain ritual by an oak tree. Um. Um, so she leaves her father's castle to go outside to to um, do this ritual because her love is far away. And then she, while she's there, she meets a strange woman. And uh, the woman says, "Oh, I'm a friend of your father's. Why don't you um, invite me in?" Um, so if you've seen *Is it the Lost Boys*, um, John Lithgow. Um, no one's seen it. You know who John and Lithgow is? Yeah. Okay, so there's a moment in that movie where he says to the star, the kid, he's coming to their house for dinner, and there's a moment in the movie when um, he knocks on the door, and the kid just opens the door, so he'll come in and he says, oh, no, I may be your teacher or something, but I'm too much of a gentleman to come in without being invited. And so um, the kid says, all right, sure, come on in, and then he comes in. And that's a crucial moment because um, vampires can't come in unless they're invited. They can't cross a threshold. Um, (laughs) If you've seen Buffy, you know that. Although Buffy has great fun with that. Because eventually vampires, that's a mythology, and they just go charging in. Um, Same with Geraldine, who's the name of the woman Christabel finds. Uh, Christabel invites her in, and strange and unpleasant things happen. Um, and it's a very, very spooky (laughs) poem. Um, but, um, here what we have is, um, the beadsman, this kind of strange, spooky background, um, and then this party coming, and all the people, there are numerous as shadows, haunting fairly, hang on to that phrase, numerous as shadows, by the way, because Shelley is going to pick it up in The Triumph of Life. Um, Numerous as shadows, haunting fairly, that is, shadows that act like fairies, haunting fairly, the brain. So where are these shadows? In your head. head. New stuffed in youth. What does that mean? The brain new stuffed in youth. Because you learn
1: lots of stuff when you're
0: young. Yeah, like you guys. I mean, your brains feel stuffed, right? Okay, yeah, good. They should, that's the point. So haunting the brain, haunting like fairies, the brain stuffed, newly stuffed in youth, with what? Triumphs gay. With triumphs gay from where? Old romance. Yes, (laughs) so um, these people show up at the party The way shadows show up in the brain of a young person who is reading lots and lots of old romances, reading Spencer, reading the Roman de la Rose, reading um, all these great romance works from medieval days. And so the brain of such a youth is just filled with fairies and shadows and wonders and Um, you know the modern version of this is if you sit down and read all of Harry Potter you know over a week um, your brain will be stuffed with um, uh, magic Um, so Keats is saying that's how many people were there they were like all the thoughts you would have if you had a real um, pig out on old romance really stuffed yourself on old romance Um, so how does that connect to when I have fears that I may cease to be do you know it's OK if you don't. Um, there, Keats will also talk about his brain being stuffed full of, um, of amazing <coughs> ideas, amazing poetic <coughs> conceits. Um, but so there are all these people at, the, at this party. And he says, these let us wish away. So forget all these people. These let us wish away. And turn soul thoughted, so let's think only about one person, soul thought it what would that mean yeah only thinking one thing. yeah only thinking one thing um and turned soul thought it to one lady there whose heart had brooded all that wintry day on love and winged saint agnes saintly care as she had heard <coughs> old dames full many times declare so th- old women had told her many times that St. Agnes Day is the day you should think of love. Why? They told her how, upon St. Agnes Eve, young virgins might have visions of delight and soft adorings from their loves receive upon the honeyed middle of the night. If ceremonies do, they did aright. Um, So that's a very famous line, uh, um, upon the honeyed middle of um, what does honeyed mean there? Yeah, sweetened, sweetened but um, sweetened by what? <coughs> who sweetened it? Honey. <laughs> is honey a who? <laughs> oh, honey! <laughs> Don't you honey me? Yeah, um, it, sweetened by sleep, okay, um, sweetened by, um, the, the beautifulness of the middle of the night that will come if you're thinking of St. Agnes' Eve. Um, what do you think of the word honeyed there? Do you like it or not like it? I just read this thing on, um, um, what do you call it, the intro webs, um, about words that everyone hates. Mm. Did you read that?
1: I've read articles like that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So the the word that everyone really really hates, apparently, if you do a survey of people, no matter what the context, everybody hates yes. the word moist. moist. Yeah. Mm. Um, see, don't you? <laughs> um, apparently, the only word that's worse than moist, of that caliber, is ointment. Um, yeah. So. It, it's worth <coughs> noticing that there are words that are just, they ha, there's an ick factor to them. Is there any ick to honeyed, or is it just, <coughs> just beautiful? Yeah. Well, when I read it,
1: I didn't like it because it made me think of Hamlet.
0: Yeah, what in Hamlet?
1: Um, when he's talking to Gertrude. Or yes, or to um, Gertrude? No, no, no. Gertrude. Yeah? And, uh, honeying and making love over the nasty side.
0: Yeah, honeying and making love over the nasty style. Um, yeah. So, what is icky? Do, do people find honey here icky, or do they find it lovely? I like it here. You like it. Mm-hmm. Um, how many people like it? How many people find it icky? All right. How many people are like it's? I don't know. How many people are neutral? <laughs> I think I'm still deciding. It's like out of place. I don't think it's like icky, but
1: it's like kind of a weird thing to say. Why? <laughs>
0: okay. Um, if you find it all icky, what's icky about it? Seriously, trust your instincts. What could you imagine finding icky about it if you don't find it icky? What could you imagine?
1: It's sticky.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it does feel a little sticky. Um, the idea that the middle of the night is sticky is, is just not quite the right thing for what you would want it to be. But I think it's one of those, I think it's both lovely and icky simultaneously. I think that it's not either or. In this case, it's both and. Um, do you feel that? Does that? Is that something that you can make sense of? Um, I think that's why it's such a famous line. Upon the honeyed middle of the night. Which I think
1: is, because like, when you read it, it's, you know exactly what
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can almost feel it. Um, and what you sort of have to do is decide, well, what I'm going to prefer is the taste rather than the viscosity and stickiness of it. I'm going to think of it as sweet rather than thinking of it as um, it's going to take a lot of hot water to get this off my hands or off my spoon or whatever. Um, so that's a, it's a very Keatsian word, which is to say it's rich... Um, Keats's language is always rich, maybe a little bit more than um, you want it to be. Um, Keats always piles up the richness of his language. He writes with um, the richest of all la- of, of the language of anyone of the Romantics. Um, the way he put it in a letter once is, he said, "You should load every rift with ore." That is to say that whatever you're writing, every time um, there's any, um, any place in the writing that you can fill it in with gold, fill it in with gold, load every rift with ore. Load is a word that Keats likes a lot um, because it gets that sense of heaviness uh, and plenteousness that he likes. Um, this poem is very much about that plenteousness. What is it, where is it, um, that Porphyro hides while he's um, waiting. What closet full of, what's the closet used for? Closet, by the way, means private room. It doesn't, it doesn't mean mothballs, coats, shoes. I'll crouch, they won't see me. Um, what it means is it's a kind of private room without windows. Um, so what is that closet being used for, do you remember? It's all the food for the party, all the delicacies for the party. Um, so it's filled with incredible delicacy. Um, here you should be thinking of Byron, thinking of Don Juan, thinking of um, the Sultan's palaces, uh, the Sultan's palace, for example, or, or um, Lombro's palace, just all the wealth that Juin and Haiti, for example, find themselves um, um, being able to make use of. Um, find finding at their disposal um Keats is reading don Juan and and doing a little bit of some of the stuff that byron is doing um, but he 's writing about virgins um, which byron totally wasn't i mean he is he is for some of the women, but um that 's not really byron 's interest um so full of richness, full of wealth, full of color, what is it that um we see? In um, what does the moonlight do in this poem? Do you remember? So Parfro is watching Madeline doing what? <laughs> Undressing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Were you embarrassed by that? So <laughs> oh, <just> love. <laughs> <laughs> it's just love. Yeah, it could be a little bit creepy. Um, yeah. What you will see in Keats and I use the word see advisedly is intense voyeurism it's something that he is really um, has a kind of well voyeurism is probably the wrong word Um, Keats is very (coughs) much a poet who is about looking at stuff but looking at it so intensely that he feels it so um, there's it's a combination of the technical word is scopophilia, or love of looking. Scopophilia, um, the pleasure that you get from looking. Um, if you ever take a film course, you'll I hear I totally
1: it. read an article about that. Yeah, probably Laura
0: Mulvey. It was. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah,
0: um, <laughs> yeah visual pleasure.
1: the Third, something like that. Uh, I did it when UWS was Richard
0: III, so oh. it's like Shakespeare.
1: Oh, who taught that? Um,
0: Emily Fine. Uh-huh, cool. Um, Yes. Yeah. So you did the, which Richard III did you do? Which movie? Or did you do uh, a movie?
1: We did both. We did uh, the Lawrence Olivier version
0: and the um, and the um, Ian McKellen version. Yeah. yeah. Um,
1: and we read the text.
0: So. The very long text.
1: In very great detail. Good. And just like an entire semester. Good. But Scott Feel it wasn't there. I had a friend who
0: wanted to write a play about Nixon called Richard the Turd. You
1: should encourage him to do so.
0: (laughs) I think he missed his moment. Um, Could be about Cheney, though, right? That would still work. Um, Although this is a nonpartisan class, just because we're reading revolutionary poets. Um, Okay, so what... Scopophilia is, it is a word that you'll see in, if you ever take um, any kind of film classes. Um, what scopophilia literally means is love of looking. And um, you could imagine two ways that you could experience scopophilia. Um, one is that almost a Shelleyan way, um, or a Dantesque way, which is... All you care about is what you can see. Seeing is the greatest of all senses. Um, Seeing shows you marvels. There's no other sense that is anything like vision. So that's a kind of visionary way of understanding love of looking. Um, The idea of vision is the idea that No no other experience, no sound, no feeling, no taste, no smell, um, could give you anything like the experience of seeing. That's the (coughs) sense. And that's what you'll get in Shelley and Dante, just these amazing visual descriptions of stuff that you can see. Um, For Keats, what you get instead is something called synesthesia, and what synesthesia is, it's, a, it's um, full-blown synesthesia is very rare, um, but some version of synesthesia is probably, it's very rare not to have any version of it. So if, if you can think of certain sounds as sweet, um, like a C and a G, if you play those together, most people would say that's the sweetest, the sweetest pair of notes you can play, is a C and a G. Um, well, how do you hear sweetness? the idea that that's a sweet sound, the very idea of a sweet sound is a synesthetic idea what synesthesia means is that you are combining sensory experiences from different senses you are turning something you hear into something that you can almost taste, that's why you call it a sweet sound Um, or something you smell into something you can taste. That's something that almost everyone has. That is, everyone confuses as you you probably learned this like in third grade. Um, Most of what (coughs) people think they taste, they actually smell. Um, Right? You only have, your taste buds are only tuned to five different tastes. Um, But we're capable of discriminating hundreds and thousands of different things by taste, but it's not only by taste, it's by taste and smell. So that's the most standard way of synesthesia. Um, Some people will think of um, notes on a piano. If you play a scale on a piano, um, some people will think of each note as having a color or thinking of the range of the the scale from, let's say, C to C as being a range that changes color um, as you go up the scale. Is that familiar to anyone? Um, Notes having colors or voices having colors? Um, does a high voice, do you associate a different color with a high voice and a low voice? Anyone? You do? Do other people? A little bit? Um, if you talk about, it's, it's a term in opera, coloratura. Um, the, um, lots of people will associate colors with vowels. So that an A sound, if you think of the color of an A sound, A it's different from A, is different from E, is different from I. Is that something that you can imagine at all in your minds? Very few people don't have any of this. And in fact, um, it appears to be the case that people um, who share a native language also share the same color association with vowels. Um, if you learn a language so for do you do you have any color associations with vowels
1: no. <laughs> not at all <laughs>
0: no. what about a sweet sound does that make sense to you the idea yeah. of a sweet sound uh, okay.
1: it's more, yeah I, I don't I don't associate you no know, sweet colors but mm, I'm more familiar with
0: Well, it does seem to be the case, and this is actually something that's important for for what poets do, that people in a language, people who grow up speaking a language, people who have have the same native language, will have the same color associations um, if they have them with the sounds of words and the sounds of vowels. And um, those color associations are part of the subliminal experience that you have if you have them, part of the subliminal experience that you have. Um, when you read poetry. Um, Probably for a lot of you, if you think about it, actually do think about it, just write this down so you're not um, uh, hearing what other people say. The word honeyed, give it a color association. but very tasteful gray and flecked with no all right um color association amber gold
1: gold, gold. yellow yellow yellow,
0: yellow. yellow. unsurprisingly right <laughs> the color of honey um but then that's part of what's both lovely and icky about the idea is that the middle of the night is dark that is you think of it as dark and because you think of it as dark you think of it as substance-less that is um, the middle of the night is where things are empty where there's just darkness around but the honey middle of the night suddenly feels both weighty with honey, sticky with honey and amber or golden or yellow with honey and that's something Keats is really good at it's almost as though you, know, you put honey on a piece of bread and you can almost taste it you know that's how beer ads work right you know that beer ads are not allowed to show anyone drinking beer do you know that have you ever wondered why they put so much money into beer ads it's because they can't show anyone drinking it's against the law Um, yeah that's why why alcohol ads are so crazy because you can't show on broadcast TV you can't show people drinking um and so beer ads are about making you thirsty um And they turn the fact that they can't show anyone drinking into, they make a virtue of that requirement, which is, you keep waiting for someone to drink. It's so cold. They look so hot. They're playing so hard. They're so sweaty. You're waiting for them to drink. Just when they're about to drink, they don't. You say, damn it, I'm going to have to get a beer myself. Um, I mean, you guys are too young, but eventually you'll feel that way. Um, So... Um, all of that appeals to um, synesthetic responses in us. Um, and Keats had that intensely. So his kind of scopophilia, his kind of visual um, interest in things, is that he could he, when he saw things, he could almost feel or taste them. Um, just looking for him was a way of feeling loaded with what he was looking. Um, feeling immersed in it, feeling um, like like um, it was there for him he didn't need to go he didn't have to see something and say oh I must plunge into that seeing it was his way of plunging into it and you'll see this in Keats over and over and over again these incredibly lush and luscious what do you think of luscious as a word by the way? <clears throat> yeah I feel the same way but it's a good word for Keats, these incredibly lush and luscious descriptions of the things that he's seeing. Um, So here she's going to dream of her love upon the honeyed middle of the night, then Porphyro is going to watch her undressing. Um, Well, we'll, do you remember the line about the music? It's in uh, the very next stanza. The music yearning like a god Um, another amazing line, that is the sound of the music feels like yearning, like a god in pain, so somehow music is feeling like a combination of desire I yearn for that and pain um, and divinity, all this from the sound of music, Um, and she scarcely hears it Um, The music yearning like a god in pain, she scarcely heard. So the poem gets richer and richer and richer. Um, to get back to the Beadsman and to get back to your question, Courtney, what happens at the very end is we pull out again, having zoomed in deeper and deeper and deeper into this world. Stanza um, 41 they're escaping the castle. They glide. This is a uh, second to last stanza, line 360. One. they glide like phantoms into the wide hall like phantoms to the iron porch they glide where lay the porter in uneasy sprawl with a huge empty flagon by his side uh, if you're as immersed in Shakespeare as Keats is what porter is this
1: <coughs> yeah
0: um, he's you know he's not even thinking oh death him. he's just thinking yeah porter you know, it's a castle there's a porter um, Porter's drunk. That's what he knows from Porter's because uh, he gets it from Shakespeare. Um, the wakeful bloodhound rose and shook his hide, but his sagacious eye an inmate owns. By one and one the bolts full easy slide, the chains lie silent on the footworn stones, the key turns and the door upon its head. So the dog almost barks at them, but doesn't. Again, if you read Christabel, there's um, a mastiff in Christabel that doesn't like this woman that Christabel's bringing in. And um, Coleridge asks, but what can ail the mastiff bitch? Perhaps it is the outlet's twitch for what can ail the mastiff bitch? That is, why is the dog groaning? But this dog doesn't. This dog says, oh, it's Madeline. I know her. Um, no reason to bark so it's all very quiet and they are gone they escape I ages long ago the, these lovers fled away into the storm that night the baron dreamt of many a woe and all his warrior guests with shade and form of witch and demon and large coffin worm were long be nightmared Angela the old died palsy twitched with meager face deform. The beadsman after a thousand aves told for I unsought for slept among his ashes cold. So they escape and the Baron has terrible dreams, all his guests have terrible dreams and then um, time passes Angela dies, the beadsman dies but Porphyro and Madeline escaped out of the poem out of the castle out of the world into some kind of fairy land which is um, where they belong together so they don't die um, it's, they, it's they get away and then we pull out and what we're left with is this um, grim place from which they're gone um, but and we're back with the beadsman but they are gone, so Porphyro watches Madeline undress and go to sleep. Um, the moon casts um, shines through stained glass window, and what does the stained glass do? Do you remember? Um, this is um, <laughs> go to eh, uh, start line 199 out went the taper as she hurried in um, its little smoke and pallid moonshine died she closed the door she panted all akin to spirits of the air and visions wide no uttered syllable or woe betide But to her heart, her heart was voluble, painting with eloquence her balmy side. As though a tongueless nightingale should swell her throat in vain and die, heart stifled in her dell. So again, feel the synesthesia here. We want to hear the nightingale sing, but she swells her throat and doesn't. Because uh, part of the rules that Madeline has heard is you're not supposed to say anything. Then, a casement high. What's a casement? A window. A window. Do you know the other Keats poem with the famous casement? There are actually two of them. The Ode to Psyche, which he's going to write in a little while, um, a couple of months after the Eve of St. Agnes, ends with, and a casement ope at night to let the warm love in. So a casement is a kind of window. That's actually a casement window. It's a window... um, in a kind of box so not a window flush with the wall but a window with a ledge because it's built as a kind of box so a casement is that kind of window Um, so a casement high and triple arch there was all garlanded with carven imageries of fruits and flowers and bunches of knot grass and diamonded with panes of quaint device Last two words, again, coordinate pains of quaint device. And you're going to say?
1: Leave
0: a circle around to a place. Uh, nice rhyme. <laughs> it, it
1: rhymed.
0: It was uh, a miracle. It was a miracle of rare device, a sunny pleasure dome, in mm-hmm. cave's device. Of of ice. Okay. okay. I'm sure he's echoing that quaint device here instead of rare device. Yes. But, um, that's Kubla Khan that I call Richie. Um, insanity to Kublai Khan, a stately pleasure
1: dome decree where out the sacred, sacred river ran through caverns measureless to man down to a sunless sea. Yeah. So twice five miles. A fertile, fertile ground. ground. A fertile ground with walls and towers fertile ground.
0: No. All right. <laughs> um, at any rate, what, um, what he does is he builds caves of ice, and then what we hear is um, it was a miracle of rare device, the sunny... With caves of ice. So here we get diamonded with panes of quaint device, innumerable of stains and splendid dyes, as are the tiger moth's deep damasked wings, and in the midst, among thousand heraldries (coughs) and twilight saints and dim emblazonings, a shielded scutcheon blushed with blood of queens and kings. Again, so this is a description of a stained glass window. There's a window. The window has stained glass. Um, the glass, the, it, the dyes are splendid. They're like the tiger moth's deep damasked wings, so you can feel, it doesn't feel like glass, but it feels like the soft damask, the soft material of a tiger moth's wings, even softer still, um, but, but deeply dyed, because of course tiger moths are, are like butterflies, they're very bright, brightly colored. And in the midst, among thousand heraldries and twilight saints and dim emblazonings, all of this is on the stained glass window, a shielded scutcheon, that is um, a crest, blushed with blood of queens and kings. So it's bright red, is what he's saying, but you can feel the blush there. So he's describing something you're seeing, and it's coming out as, as the feeling of a blush. Full on this casement shone the wintry moon. And threw warm jewels on Madeline's fair breast. So, if you have a footnote, oh, the footnotes, the, your notes are at the back. Mm-hmm. Anyone know what jewels means? So, see if you know what book. What? No, no. Nice guess though. Uh, last line of a famous book. Um, on a field sable. The letter A, jewels. Oh, yes.
1: like something, uh, silver.
0: Not silver, but do you know what book that is?
1: Yeah.
0: Sorry? I thought it was Hawthorne. Yeah, it's a scarlet letter. So what color is the letter? Red. Yeah, not silver, red. On a field, sable. Sable means black, as in Hamlet. Um, Black is his purpose Pyrrhus, black is his purpose Did the sable knight resemble But now Carbuckled from head to toe In coagulate gore He is total Anyone know? He's covered with blood in Hamlet So Shakespeare says But now He had been sable But now Covered with head to toe With coagulate blood He is total Guess, why would I be asking this? Jules. Yeah, G-U-L-E-S means scarlet. It's a heraldic word for scarlet. So on a field sable, the letter A jewels, that's a heraldic description of a scarlet letter on a black background. So here what's happening is we have this very red scutcheon, this very red shield, you know, heraldic shield. That's what a scutcheon is very red heraldic shield, blushing with the blood of queens and kings. Full on this casement shone the wintry moon and threw warm jewels on Madeline's fair breast. So um, projected a warm red color through the blushing red of the scutcheon. Um, so on her fair breast, you can see this warm red color projected by the moon the pale, the pallid moon we heard a little while ago now shining through the stained glass window and, um, and um, throwing warm jewels on her <coughs> fair breast. So again, just notice all the combination of sensory images here. Her breast is fair, but it now looks warm with the red color cast on it by the cold wintry moon through the blushing red of the um, stained glass window, all of those things are being combined amazingly, and that's something Keats is just great at doing. As down she knelt for heaven's grace and boon, um, pedantic um, writers have pointed out that moonlight won't um, cast colors through stained glass. Just so you know, this couldn't. Um, because what you need is you need full spectrum light to get colors through stained glass and moonlight the moon only reflects one color basically um, a very pale yellow um, so moonlight what Keith is describing here is impossible sunlight will do it moonlight won't so next time you're in a church and there's a full moon look at the stained glass and it'll be in black and white it won't be in colors Um But for Keats, it's all color. So as down she knelt for heaven's grace and boon, rose bloom fell on her hands, together pressed, and on her silver cross soft amethyst, and on her hair a glory like a saint. She seemed a splendid angel, newly dressed, save wings for heaven. Porphyro grew faint. She knelt so pure a thing, so free from mortal taint. Anon, his heart revives her vespers done of all its wreathed pearls her hair she frees unclasps her warmed jewels one by one so again what's the crucial word there yeah so she takes off her jewels one by one he's watching her do that but Keats pauses to say the jewels are warmed by her body by her flesh so you're looking at jewels. Who looks at jewels and thinks, oh, how warm they look? Um, Keats does, is the answer. Um, Loosens her fragrant bodice. By degrees, her rich attire creeps rustling to her knees, half hidden like a mermaid in seaweed. Pensive a while, she dreams awake and sees in fancy fair St. Agnes in her bed, but dares not look behind, or all the charm is fled. So she imagines that St. Agnes is in um, her bed, Again, this should, if you know Christabel, this will remind you of Christabel because Christabel and Geraldine share a bed. Um, soon trembling in her soft, chilly nest. So she's cold, but it's soft. In sort of wakeful swoon, perplexed she lay until the poppied warmth of sleep oppressed her soothed limbs and soul fatigued. So first she's um, cold in her. Her bed is soft, but she's cold. But then the poppied warmth of sleep made her fall asleep. So it's almost as though she falls into the warmth that sleep offers. Again, feel, do you see, see or do you feel, or do you hear the synesthesia here? Just how all these things are merging. Um, Flown like a thought until the morrow day, blissfully havened both from joy and pain, Clasped like a missile, where Swart Paynim's prey, blinded alike from sunshine and from rain, as though a rose should shut and be a bud again. So Porphyro watches all this, and then um, he makes her this giant meal. Go to stanza thirty, and still she slept an azure-lidded sleep. Here I think you can really hear Don Juan behind this, in blanched linen, smooth and lavender while he from forth the closet. Brought a heap of candied apple, quince, and plum, and gird with jelly soother, and the creamy curd, and loosened syrups tinked with cinnamon, manna, and dates, and argosy transferred from fez, and spiced dainties, everyone from silken Samarkand to cedared Lebanon. Um, do not think of hummus. <laughs> no, you can't help it. <laughs> um, so he makes her this amazing meal and then he wakes her up and um, at first she won't wake up but finally um, he plays her at line 291 start at 289 (coughs) Um, awakening up that is he started um, kind of going into a trance but now he he wakens up Well, no, let's look at at the previous stanza. Thus, what whispering his he says, if you don't wake up, I shall drowse beside thee, so my soul doth ache. Ache is a word that Keats loves, um, and you can see why. Um, Ache means, it's like yearn for Keats. That is, it's an experience, you could say, of a kind of pain, but an experience of pain which is directed outwards. If you see something, you might ache for it or you might yearn for it. And that's how Keats will tend to use those words. So aching is not a word that simply means, oh, yes, the experience of pain. It means something like the experience of desire for something that you can sense, usually by seeing, and that you want to get closer to. So... If you don't wake up, open thine eyes for meek St. Agnes' sake, or I shall drowse beside thee, so my soul doth ache. Thus whispering, his warm, unnerved arm sank in her pillow. Shaded was her dream by the dust curtains, twas midnight charm, impossible to melt as iced stream the lustrous salvers in the moonlight gleam broad golden fringe upon the carpet lies it seemed he never never could redeem from such a steadfast spell his lady's eyes so mused a while entoiled in woofed fantasies so remember the witch of atlas and the woof that she weaves Um, this is where keats and Shelley come closest to each other awakening up he took her hollow lute Tumultuous, tumultuous, and in chords, the tenderest bee, he played an ancient ditty, long since mute, in Provence called La Belle Dame Sans Merci, close to her ear, touching the melody. So, what is La Belle Dame Sans Merci? Say it. Yeah, it's one of the poems you read for today. In fact, he wrote the poem La Belle Dame sans Merci a couple of months after writing um, The Eve of St. Agnes. So there is a poem, a 14th century poem called La Belle Dame sans Merci, which is completely irrelevant, except by way of title, to um, anything he's doing here. La Belle Dame sans Merci is a poem in which a lover says, God, I'm so in love with you, but you're cruel to me. And the beloved says, Yeah, well, it's, I don't love you. And he says, But that's not fair. I love you so much. And she says, That's not my fault. That's the poem. Um, but Keats wants... Sorry? Is that
1: Baudelaire?
0: No. No, it's Alain um, Chartier, And it's, um, it's, as I say, the 14th century. Baudelaire's 19th century. Time, um, that? Time, yes, exactly. Um, we don't worry about time. Um, but it's almost as though, having written this poem, he decided to write the poem that, um, that Porphyro plays and sings for her. So he um, plays this ancient ditty, ditty close to her, her ear touching the melody, wherewith disturbed she uttered a soft moan. He sees she panted quickly and suddenly her blue afraid eyes wide open shone. Upon his knees he sunk pale as smooth sculptured stone. Um, and then she sees him and she's a little bit scared go to uh, 306. Ah Porphyro, said she, but even now thy voice was at sweet tremble in mine ear. Again, the idea of a trembling voice, a sweet tremble. Your voice was at sweet tremble. So tremble is physical, sweet is taste, um, but it's your voice that felt like a sweet trembling at mine ear, made tunable with every sweetest vow. And those sad eyes were spiritual and clear. How changed thou art, how pallid, chill, and drear. Give me that voice again, my Porphyro, those looks immortal, those complainings, dear. Oh, leave me not in this eternal woe, for if thou dies, my love, I know not where to go. So she doesn't even know if she's dreaming, but she wants him back. Um, here I'm just going to say Keats' is, um, echoing in his mind is um, Antony and Cleopatra, uh, which probably echoes in his mind more than any other Shakespeare play, is Antony and Cleopatra. Um, the, um, those looks immortal, he's thinking, of Cleopatra saying after Antony dies, I have immortal longings in me. That is her longing to be with Antony, In the regions of death, Um, so give that to me again. Give me that voice again, my Porphyro. Those looks immortal. Those complainings, dear, oh, leave me not in this eternal woe. For if that dies, my love, I know not where to go. Beyond a mortal man, so he turns into something immortal. Beyond a mortal man, I mean metaphorically, impassioned far. At these voluptuous accents, he arose, ethereal, flushed, and like a throbbing star, seen mid the sapphire heaven's deep repose. Into her dream he melted, as the rose blendeth its odors with the violet solution sweet. Okay, so what happens? Not to put too fine a point on it, they have sex. How do you know? The language. Okay, the language, good. You can always tell that it's sex by language. um, What's the crucial word? Crucial synesthetic word. If ever you wanted a single phrase to remember how Keatsian synesthesia works, what would the phrase be? Okay, melted is good. He melts into her dream. Yep. Um, into her dream he melted. As the rose blendeth blendeth its odor with the violet solution sweet. So that's a little bit like the honey in the middle of the night. Um, but even more.
1: Throbbing.
0: Throbbing star. Yeah. Throbbing like, you know what? Um beyond a mortal man impassioned far at these voluptuous accents he arose non-innocent word there arose ethereal, flushed so he's simultaneously um, arising um, but he's ethereal like an angel he's flushed um, the way um, we saw the blush of um, in the scutcheon in the stained glass window. Ethereal flushed and like a throbbing star. Throbbing is, um, you could just say, oh yeah, no, no, he just means twinkling. You know, twinkle, twinkle, little star. Throb, oh, throb, oh, little star. Um, What do we think of the word throb? I think it's a little like the word moist. Um, But what kinds of things throb? pain. Right? Don't you talk about throbbing pains? Do you talk about any other kind of throbbing besides pains? No. I I think this word should start seeming a little weird to you. Just saying throb a few times. It's a word that will seem weird really fast. Um, You will talk about a heart throb, But that's a kind of yearning, right? That means I see that person and my heart feels the kind of pain um, that you get when you have a throbbing pain in your finger or whatever. Um, and, um, but it's because I, I'm in love with that person. So you get a sense in that word of yearning and of pain, um, and like a throbbing star, he wants her. But of course, you also get the highly physical description of a phallus, um, But a throbbing star, you would never, only Keats in the whole history of the world would talk about a throbbing star. Um, You might talk about a throbbing noise. That would be as far as you would get from pure physical sensation. You know, oh God, not the throbbing noise of the bass that my downstairs neighbor is continually playing. Um, But a throbbing star. So here you have this completely visual and far distant thing a star seen mid the sapphire heaven's deep repose there's a throbbing star and that thing seen so far away turns into something which is a feeling and a feeling of overt and manifest sexuality which then turns into a melting into her dream he melted as the rose blendeth its odor with the violet solution sweet we cut away G poem meantime the frost wind blows like love's alarm pattering the sharp sleet against the window panes Saint Agnes moon hath set um, alright I wanted us to look but I think we'll, we'll start with this on um, Friday um, now let's look quickly at when I fears that I may cease to be um, when we look at the poem called to Autumn, which is the last of Keats's great Odes and we're going to look at the great Odes starting on Friday um, you should also read the poem Hyperion um, you don't have to read the fall of Hyperion for Friday but Hyperion um, but um, now you know what let's look at it's we'll, we'll start with when I when I have fears but let's look at as Hermes once. So this is a sonnet, too, um, written um, a few months after the St. Agnes. As Hermes once took to his feathers light, when lulled Argus baffled, swooned, and slept. So Hermes, um, in the myth, lulled Argus um, in order to rescue Io, whom Argus was guarding um, and allow Io to have sex with Zeus as Hermes once took to his feathers light when lulled Argus, Argus baffled, swooned and slept so on a Delphic reed my idol Sprite so played, so charmed, so conquered so bereft the dragon world of all its hundred eyes and seeing it asleep, so fled away. So the first six lines is, Hermes once got Argus to fall asleep so he could help Zeus um, have sex with Io. Um, I played on a Greek reed in order to make the world fall asleep so that I could steal away. Now, he's stealing away individually, not like Porphyro, And Madeline, but simply himself stealing away. I fled away in the same way, not to pure Ida with its snow clad skies, that is, not to the mountain of the gods Ida, not to pure Ida with its snow, excuse me, with its snow cold skies, nor unto Tempe. Where grove where Jove grieved that day but to that second circle of sad hell where in the gust the whirlwind and the flaw of rain and hailstones lovers need not tell their sorrows so do you know who's in the do you know what he's talking about here the second circle of hell who's what? Yeah. Uh, Who? Francesca. Yeah, Paolo Francesca in the poem by Dante, Dante called Inferno. Inferno. Yes, good. So the story of Paolo Francesca is the story of Paolo Francesca in the second circle of hell. They are lovers, adulterous lovers, and they spend eternity in hell together in a storm, blown around, blown around each other in a storm. So Keats says, when I manage to escape from the world I didn't go to the Olympian Mountains I didn't go to, to Mount Ida I didn't go to all these places but no I stole away to the se- that second circle of sad hell where in the gust the whirlwind and the flaw of rain and hailstones lovers need not tell their sorrows pale were the sweet lips I saw pale were the lips I kissed and fair the form I floated with about that melancholy storm. So where he escapes in his imagination is into a storm, much like the storms the lovers escape into at the end of the Eve of St. Agnes. It's the same outside, and there he thinks of himself as kissing Francesca, um, floating with her, being blown around, maybe a little bit like the second spirit, um, being blown around in hell, but kissing her pale lips. And again, notice the visual there. Pale were the lips I kissed, and pale the form. That is, he's seeing the power. He's seeing it, and that's turning into kissing. Um, but it's all in this storm. Um, okay, um, I think everyone always likes Keats, so even though he's the least great of the three poets we're doing, he's pretty darn great. Um, So more junkets, as he called himself, John Keats, junkets, Uh, more junkets on.